Good morning, everyone. These are different times, as Mike already mentioned. But let's uh, let's look into the Word of God this morning, and let's let's see what we can learn about who Jesus is. We'll be in Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty this morning. And so we have reached verse fifteen in the book of Colossians. Let's have a quick look to how we got here. I'll give you a little bit of context, the backstory. Paul is imprisoned in Rome when he wrote the book of Colossians, along with a few other books. And starting in Acts chapter 21 is where we see this story unfolding, and where he was arrested in Jerusalem upon a false accusation of allowing a Gentile to enter the inner court of the temple. And he was brought from there to, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, where he spent two years in prison. And while there, Paul appealed to Caesar. And so he was brought by ship to the city of Rome, and he endured two more years of prison in Rome. It is here, while in prison, that Epaphras came to Paul from Colossae. And we see that in Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, in order to bring a report of the church to Paul. Paul has never most likely been to Colossae, and it is possible that Epaphras was the one who planted the church there after hearing the gospel preached by Paul in Ephesus. And Epaphras brings a report of false teachings that have been creeping into the church, and it must have concerned him enough to make the journey from Colossae to Rome to inquire of Paul about these false teachings. But the report isn't all bad, though, as we see in verses 3 to 8. And Paul is thankful for their faith, and he's thankful for their love that they have for each other. And he continues in chapter 1, verses 5 to 8 of Colossians, explaining how thankful he is that they have heard the true gospel from Epaphras according to Jesus Christ, which is in stark contrast to the false teachings according to man that he addresses in Colossians chapter 2. Let's just flip the pages over to Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. And we'll see the contrast here. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Remember, they were taught these things by Epaphras back in chapter 1 of verse 7. Abounding in thanksgiving, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not not according to Christ. So Epaphras was teaching the things according to Christ, whereas the false teachers were not. Paul continues in chapter 1, verse 9, where he prays for the Colossians, and he prays that they will be filled with spiritual wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of who God is. In that portion of Scripture, in verses 12 to 14, Paul gives us a brief look at the Gospel. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 Verses 12 to 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints and light. And he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So now in the following verses, Paul is expanding on this brief look at the gospel. In fact, verses 12 to 14, 12 to 14 
bring us into a discussion of who is this Jesus? Who is this Christ as described in verses 15 to 20, who can save according to verses 12 to 14? Who is he that he is able to complete these promises that are made? Who can qualify us to share in the inheritance? And who can deliver us from darkness? Who can forgive sins? Who is this Jesus? And this brings us to verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1. And they are some of the most focused Christological verses in all of Scripture. These verses build the foundation of how Paul desires the Colossians to view Christ in light of the false teachings in chapter 2. And Paul is exalting Christ. And he's presenting him to the Colossians as being enough. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul declares that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Although Paul refutes the false teachings in chapter 2, what he also does in our text today is set an example for us. Not only do we need to expose errors when we see them, but it is equally important to lead others towards the truth. As Christians, we should not only be known for what we're against, as is so often the case, but we must be known for what we are for, which is the gospel. Like so many other false teachers, even to this day, the false teachers in Colossae were not necessarily denying Christ or even the importance of Christ, but they were adding to him and his finished work. According to chapter 2, they were teaching the young Colossian church, that they also needed to rely on traditions and they needed to rely on angels, on visions and rules and so on. Christ was recognized by the false teachers, but he was not being worshipped. He was appreciated by the false teachers, but he was not being exalted. He was given prominence, but but not preeminence. It is Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found and nothing can be added to his glory. To do so bears the distinguishing mark of false teacher. So because of the false teachings, Paul places particular emphasis on Christ's supremacy over all powers in both creation and redemption. Although my words will never truly put Christ on display in his fullness, I trust the Holy Spirit will reveal him to your hearts and minds as we look at in this passage today. And we will see seven truths that point to the glorious Christ of who Christ is. Paul wants the Colossians and us to realize that Jesus Christ is enough. That all of salvation from justification to glorification is through Christ alone. Not only is Christ preeminent in creation, but he is preeminent in salvation. Not only is Christ ruler of creation, but he is the ruler over salvation. He is glorious and nothing, nothing can be added to his glory. I will give you these seven truths from the passage, and you can write these down if you wish to follow along. Sometimes it just helps to have an outline. It kind of gives you a bird's eye view of the sermon as a whole. So truth number one, he is the heir of all things, found in verse 15. Truth number two, he is the creator, found in verse 16. Number three, he is before all things, verse 17. Also found in verse 17, number four, he is the sustainer of all things. Truth number five, he is the head of the church, verse 18. Number six, he is the fullness of God, verse 19. And in verse 20, he is the reconciler. So we'll read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 now. 
And I want you to know how often we see all things and how often we see everything. Paul wants his point to be crystal clear to his readers, that Christ is the supreme ruler over all things. Verse 15, chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So first, we will see the glory of Christ as the heir of all things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Being in the image of something generally refers to being in the likeness of, or to be uh, to represent something. It is used when Jesus speaks of the image of, of Caesar on the coin, or in the image of the Antichrist in Revelation. Yet the Bible also speaks of man being made in the image of God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11.7 tells us that man is made in the image and glory of God. And this, of course, supposes that we share some things in common with God. In fact, we share some of the same attributes with God. The ability to show love and kindness, possessing intellect and will. And although we share these attributes with God, we share them imperfectly. But now when someone places their faith and trust in Christ, then we are promised that that image will one day be restored to us. Turn to Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, verse 29. So there Paul explains, Paul explains, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we see that we predestined to be conformed to his image. And 1 Corinthians 15, 49 Just turn a couple pages over to verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of, man, of the man in heaven. So we see that the one day this image will be restored to us. And Christ does not have this marred image like we do because of our sin. He possesses the perfect and full image of God and all of who he is and all of his being. He did not become the image of God at his incarnation, but he has from all eternity been that perfect and spotless image of God. Hebrews 1.3 explains it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of nature, of God's nature. And he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ is not simply an image. He is the image. The gospel of John declares that whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. And Jesus is the manifestation of God as his image. He is God in the flesh. John's 8.58, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
And then in John 10, verse 30, Jesus declares, I and the Father are one. In fact, it is considered blasphemy to think anything less of Christ. And it proves a mind blinded by Satan. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. So to think that God, that Jesus has ever not been fully God, and that not that the fullness of God has has at some point not dwelt in Jesus, is blasphemy. Second Corinthians four verse four. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Their minds are blinded by Satan. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, ironically, it is often this verse that these false teachers, that these cults will use to deny that Christ is in the exact image of God. And there are cults today who claim that Jesus is only a created being, proving that their minds are blinded by Satan and that they are in need of the gospel. And yet the text today literally tells us he is the image of God, and that, and the fact that He is the firstborn over all creation must not be interpreted to mean first created being. On the contrary, it speaks instead of Christ's eternality, how He has existed in eternity past in perfect unity with the Father. To use this to say Christ was created completely misses the context of Jesus as God. Verse 19, for example, claims that the fullness of God is in Christ, while verse 16 describes Christ as creator of not most things, but of all things. How could Christ be created himself and still be the creator of all things? If he was merely created, how could he also be referred to as the image of God? In verse 15, and then the fullness of God in verse 19, and as deity in chapter 2, verse 9, Christ is not created. He is the fullness of God. So what does firstborn mean? Firstborn is his title over creation. It does not mean that he was the first created being. Although firstborn can obviously refer to someone who was born first chronologically, in Greek and Jewish culture, it refers primarily to position or rank. The one who has the first right of inheritance Generally, it was, in fact, the first one born who had the right of inheritance, but not always. Jacob and Esau, for example. Esau was the first one born in the family, but Jacob was the firstborn by the right of inheritance. Therefore, verse 15 declares Jesus as the one who inherits all of creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. He inherits all of creation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Let's turn there for a second. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he, through whom also he created the world. So we see even there, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that he has appointed the heir of all things. Let's look at a few more examples of the use of the term firstborn in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
God calls Israel his firstborn. Yet the people were not the first ones born, nor was the nation the first nation to exist. They were heirs to the promises of God, and thus Israel was God's firstborn. And again in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, we also see in verse 9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water, and in the straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So we see again Israel being called God's firstborn there. Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27. Speaking of King David here, the psalmist writes, Psalm 89, verse 27, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Yet King David was neither the first one born, nor was he even the first king of Israel. But it was through the, the king, through the line of King David that the Messiah would come, and the heir would be established. So clearly we see that this is speaking of Christ as a supreme ruler and eternal heir over all of creation. So we have seen the glory of Christ as heir of all, cre uh, as heir of, all of creation and as the perfect image of God. Second, we see the glory of Christ as creator in verse 16, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So verse 16 provides the evidence for the statement of verse 15 that Christ is the firstborn and heir of all creation because he is the creator. So the extent of his supremacy over creation is emphasized in three separate ways here. By him, all things were created. Through him, all things were created. And for him, all things were created. And just in case all things wasn't clear enough, Paul emphasizes here that things in heaven and earth, things visible and invisible, thrones, rulers, dominions, authorities, all things, everything we see, everything we feel and hear, and the things we don't see, feel, or hear. Everything in heaven and on earth, the entire universe, was created by Jesus Christ. A common heresy in the New Testament times and in the first few centuries of the church was the belief that matter was evil, and therefore a good God would not have created an evil universe. It seems that the false teachers must have been teaching that same idea, and Paul clearly refutes that here. All things were created by Christ, and so again, he cannot be both created and creator. Let's go back again to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and we'll read that one one more time. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And again in John chapter 1 verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Christ is the creator of all things. Contemplate with me just for a second the sheer staggering size of the universe. That the light from the sun takes eight and a half minutes to reach earth. That same light takes four and a half years to reach the nearest star. 
Just our galaxy alone has hundreds of billions of stars. And astronomers estimate there are millions, if not billions of galaxies, each with its own billions of stars. And Christ created this. There was emptiness. And then Christ, by his holy power, spoke the vast universe into existence, from every atom to every galaxy. The heavens declare the work of the Lord, says Psalm chapter 19. The testimony of of a creator in creation is so clear that the Bible declares it is only through willful, willful unbelief that man will reject its testimony. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Man is simply without excuse and there will no excuse will be found to give one day when the Lord comes and we must give an account before the Lord, before the Creator. No excuse will be found. Back to Colossians 1.16, not only was the visible creation created by Christ, but all the invisible realm as well. This includes angels and demons and anything else that might exist in the invisible realm. In our text, the terms thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities refers to spiritual beings and possibly different ranks within these spiritual beings. But it could also just be simply different words generally associated with the spiritual beings themselves. And even if they were ranks, we have to be careful. The Bible does not give enough information on how these ranks would be organized to develop a theology on it, as some attempt to do. So remember how in one chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, remember there how Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness, from under the rule of Satan and the world. This is how and why Christ had the authority to do this. Because the invisible realm of spirits, whether good or bad, were created by him, through him, and yes, also for him. These evil spirits were also created for him. Let's go back to Colossians, and let's just jump around in a couple different places there. So first we see that these elemental spirits were defeated by him in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. These elemental spirits were defeated by him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And we also see that we have died to the elemental spirits in Colossians 2 verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you not submit to regulations? And third, we also see that these forces, they hold no cosmic power over us. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And fourth, we should also not be deceived by these false teachings that are influenced by demonic forces. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
Also, Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, just jump up a couple of verses. It says, In whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you or no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. So we see also that if we seek to know the true Christ of Scripture, as Pastor Mike mentioned before, if we seek to fear Christ, the less likely we will be deceived by these forces and by false teachings. This vision of Christ in, in relation to creation reminds us, as F.F. Bruce says, for those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also the creator and ruler and goal of all. So we have seen the glory of Christ as creator. Third, we will see the glory of Christ in verse 17 as he is before all things. Now the term before all things, there are a couple possible views on that term, mainly being that it could refer to Christ as ruler of all things or as a priority in time as he existed before anything else existed. Although commentators acknowledged that there were these two possible views, I did actually not manage to find one who believed the former view to be correct given the context of the passage and the usage in the original language. So we will focus on the latter, that Christ existed before anything else existed. So he is before all things, clearly it brings our attention back to verses 15 and 16, and focuses on Christ's relationship to creation. Christ pre-existed the creation. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then also in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus told the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am. And again, Micah, the prophet in the Old Testament, clearly speaking of the coming Messiah, said of the Christ, in Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth... Who's coming forth is from the old, from ancient of days. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And if Jesus existed before time again that began, then he must be eternal. So we see the glory of Christ, that he is before all things, that he is the eternal Christ. And fourth, we will see the glory of Christ as the, as the sustainer of all things. Also in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we have looked at his work in the past, and now this verse brings us to Christ's work in the present and introduces the focus on Christ's work of redemption in the next few verses. So not only did Christ create all things, but he upholds all things. He holds all things together. Hebrews 1.3. Let's flip back to Hebrews 1 verse 3. Remember how verse 2 ends with how he created the world. And verse 3 starts, And he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So all things are held together by Christ. 
by his preeminency and his supremacy over the entire universe. The entire universe, in fact, owes its very existence and cohesion to the power of Jesus Christ. In our men's Wednesday morning Bible studies, we were looking at some of the attributes of God, and we looked recently at God's omnipresence, and how since God is not made up of separate parts, but that God is one, he is therefore entirely present, get this, he's entirely present in his entire being in every part of the universe. That means that, that there's not part of God over there and part of God over there, but all of God exists over there and all of God exists over here. And it's something that is incomprehensible. But God is so much higher than we are. And it is by this presence that all of God exists within all of, universe, all of the universe. And the fact that the universe is created through him, he therefore upholds it by his power, by his omnipresence. And the very laws of nature itself are upheld by his sustaining power. And with this phrase, Paul makes a startling claim to his New Testament readers. Just think about it for a second. How the original audience might have maybe thought about this. Paul is not only claiming an invisible God as sustaining the universe in some abstract or immaterial sense, yet we do know that God, the invisible God, is sustaining the universe. But just think about how the original audience may have looked at it. He is also claiming that the man whom the Romans killed on a cross created and sustains the universe. A physical man who was not abstract in any sense, but he physically walked alongside others. Other people, they saw him, they touched him, and they talked to him. Paul points to this man and says he created and upholds the universe because he is God. It's not just some idea of some unseen power within the universe, but Paul points to the person of Jesus Christ and says there is the creator. Without Christ, planets would not orbit. Gravity would not exist. Plants would not grow, winds would not blow, the sun would not shine, the rain would not fall, and you and I would not draw breath. He sustains everything. In John chapter 15, verse 5, it even shows us how Christ sustains believers. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told that we are being kept and guarded by His power. Christ sustains us. So we see the glory of Christ as a sustainer of the universe and all that it contains. And fifth, we will see the glory of Christ as the head of the church. In verse 18, in Colossians chapter 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. One of the most profound metaphors for the church is the body. It gives a sense of a living organism and Christ as its head. Not as a CEO or a corporation, but as the head of a living organism. Christ is the life flow of the body and gives it life, and Christ gives it direction. As he controls every part of it, his life lived out among believers, by believers, in the body, is what gives it unity. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, 
And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not exist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, and I do not, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We also see that he coordinates and controls the diversity and distribution of spiritual gifts within this same body. So let's just jump back up to verse 4 in chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So it is God who coordinates and controls the diversity and distribution of the spiritual gifts in the body. And he does so according to how he wills. And the head of the body provides the sense of believers being in Christ and Christ in believers. Remember this, the idea of a body, the metaphor is of a living organism with Christ as its head. So we are in Christ and Christ is in us. In John chapter 15, verse 1. John chapter 15, verse 1. We see, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Christ sustains us as believers. So back in Colossians, back in Colossians, Paul in chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul discusses the Christian's proper behavior within the church. And this is only possible by being in Christ. By living out Christ within the body, with Christ as the head of the church. And in chapter 3, Paul declares, because you are found in Christ, now here is your response. If this Christ who I am describing to you, who I am telling you who this Christ is, 
If you are in this Christ, then this is how you must live. And this is how what your response must be. And if, as we read Colossians chapter 3, starting verse 1, note the in Christ and with Christ language. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And also in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 to 17, Paul continues to describe how we are to live with each other. Well, let's maybe go ahead and read that. How we are to live with each other as the body. This is our response. If this is who Christ is, then this must be our response. Colossians 3, verse 8. But now... You must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian slave, free, but Christ is in all, is all and in all. Put on then as Christ's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with a thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And these things are only possible with Christ in us. And this is our response to who Christ is. So as I said, Christ sustains the church just as he sustains the universe. Looking back at Colossians 1 verse 18, Christ is the beginning of the church just as in creation. Christ also existed before the church began. And the church has its origins in Jesus. Ephesians 1 4 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We have our origin in Christ Jesus. So Christ as the head of the church, we also see in verse 18, refers to Christ as the firstborn from the dead. Remembering again our study of firstborn in verse 15 as being first in rank or ruler over something. So here Christ is the highest rank of all who will ever be raised from the dead. And not only that, but he is the ruler over death. He has conquered death and defeated it. His resurrection exclaimed his power over a fallen world where death always seemed to win in the end. It seemed that death was the ultimate victor. But he has conquered death and he has defeated it. Death was a result of sin entering the world, a result of the fall, and death, it seemed, 
could not be defeated until Christ rose from the dead as the head of the church. His resurrection marked his ultimate preeminence over all creation. His resurrection was the exclamation point so that in all things he might be preeminent. In all things, Jesus is preeminent. So we see the glory of Christ as the head of the church in these things. And sixth, the sixth truth, we will see the glory of Christ as the fullness of God in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So when Christ came to dwell with man in human form, he was still fully God. He did not lay aside his deity nor his divinity as some false teachers even today imply he did. But he humbled himself in order to be found in human form. And this is exactly what Paul refers to in Philippians 2 verse 7, where he says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was from eternity past in the form of God, in the perfect image of God from all eternity. And he humbled himself to take on the outward image of man. He never ceased being God for a second because the fullness of God dwelled in him and it has always dwelled in him. But outwardly and physically, he looked like any other regular human being. It was an, an act of humility. The fullness of God speaks of all that God is, all his power, all his attributes. And in chapter 2, the false teachers argued that in order for the Colossians to experience true fullness, that the Colossians would need to follow the teachings of these false teachers. They would need to follow their philosophies and rules. And in chapter 2, verse 8, let's go there for a second. Paul responds to that. Starting in verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. These things are only found, true fullness is only found in the person of Jesus Christ, because it is in Him that the deity dwells. Paul is saying, remember, as I already mentioned to you in chapter 1, verse 19, that all the fullness of God is experienced only in Christ, and nothing, nothing can be added to Christ in order to experience Him more fully. Not traditions, not philosophies, not rules, visions, stories of angels, or the worship of angels. And to do so regards Him as insufficient and proves a mind darkened by Satan. The Greek word for fullness here is pleroma. And it was the term used by the heretical Gnostics in the early church to refer to divine powers and attributes, which they taught were divided up between spiritual beings. Yet in, 19, in chapter 1, verse 19 and 2, verse 9, Paul uses that same Greek word, pleroma, to refute that error. The pleroma, or fullness, was not in fact divided up between spiritual beings and angels, but it is only found to the fullness in Christ. There is no other means of salvation but through Jesus Christ. And this fullness language also reminds us of how the temple in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 4. Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 4. 
It says, Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. The temple was how God used to dwell with his people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. And how the children of Israel, when they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years, it was in the temple that that God was dwelling with his people in the Holy of Holies. But now in the New Covenant, God dwells with his people through Jesus Christ. Jesus bears the glory of God, and all that God is dwells in Jesus. Jesus is so much greater than any temple made with hands. He laid down his life as a sacrifice once and for all. The priest no longer needs to provide an atonement for the people every year in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God used to dwell in the Old Covenant Temple. But Christ has now fully accomplished salvation on the cross as a spotless Lamb of God, which was a fully sufficient atonement for sins and has provided a way into His presence where the fullness of God now dwells. As believers, we have access into the fullness of God the fullness of God that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus has opened that door. And is where the fullness of God now dwells. How gracious and merciful is our God that he would do that for us. We see the glory of Christ as the fullness of God. And the seventh and final way that we will see the glory of Christ is as the reconciler. In verse 20. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So verses 19 and 20, nicely bookend verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, we saw that Christ is the image of God. And now in 19, he is the fullness of God. He is the creator in verse 16. And now in verse 20, he reconciles all of creation to himself through his accomplished work on the cross. So when we think of God reconciling creation to himself through the cross, maybe we wonder what exactly that might mean. Does that mean that all of creation is saved? Does this teach that every person will ultimately be saved? Is salvation universal in its extent? If the Bible uses the word reconciliation in other places to refer to sinners being reconciled to God and therefore saved, And here it seems to say, all things in heaven and on earth will be reconciled. Doesn't that mean that all of creation, including all of man, will be saved? Let's let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 10, where reconciliation does in fact refer to God's saving saving work by His Son. Romans 5, 10 says, For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Yet in Colossians 1.20, universal salvation for all of creation, including man, cannot be what Paul means here. As that teaching clearly falls completely out of line with the rest of Scripture. And in fact, even in the book of Colossians, a little further in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame and by triumphing over them in him. A public spectacle was made of these demonic forces and Christ was victorious over them. They were disarmed. These demonic forces were not saved by Christ. 
They were vanquished by Christ. If Paul intended us to read chapter 1 verse 20 as meaning a universal salvation for all of creation, then how soon he must have forgotten that only a few sentences further when he speaks of demonic forces being defeated. Let's also look at Matthew 25 verse 41. If you want, you can turn to Matthew 25 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And skipping down to verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So clearly we see that the universal salvation is not in view here. So what is? Well, the language of reconciliation assumes that the relationship between all things and the creator of all things has been disrupted. Back in Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. So we see that, that this relationship has been disrupted. It has, and there's been, something has happened to it. And it is now in need to be, re- to be reconciled. And if the relationship between creation and God had not been disrupted, there would not be a need to be reconciled. Sin and death, remember, caused the creation to be at enmity with God. In the beginning, God said all creation was good. Sin destroyed that. It destroyed the harmony in nature between creatures. Sin causes thorns and thistles to choke the ground, and God cursed creation because of man's sin. But God's work in Christ will indeed one day reclaim the universe. In fact, creation itself waits with eager longing to be set free. We see in Romans chapter 18, chapter 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And again in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9, we see that making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. So then, as the commentator notes on Colossians 1.20, that it is not cosmic salvation or cosmic redemption in view here, but it is cosmic restoration and cosmic renewal. Again, not cosmic salvation or cosmic redemption in view here, but cosmic restoration or cosmic renewal, where one day the lion will once again eat hay with the ox. One day... Thorns and thistles will no longer infest the ground. One day, sickness and death will no longer destroy the body. One day, depression and anxieties will no longer bend us to their will. One day, relationships will be restored as all of creation is reconciled. And one day, every knee will bow at the name of the Lord Jesus. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom will one day, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. One day the entire creation will be reconciled to its creator. So through the blood of the cross, the rebellious creation will be made whole again. It will be restored and renewed. This peace is not yet fully established within creation, but it has been secured by the crucifixion. Yet while this peace has not been fully established in creation, it has been made available now for sinners like you and I, for all those who place their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ, all those who respond to the gospel that Jesus died for our sins will experience their reconciling peace of God. And it is a peace that is promised to those who believe. Whether that peace is felt or not, it is a peace that we have. And that peace has been secured by the work of Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Not that we will have peace, we might one day have peace, or we could have peace. It says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As sin brought death into the world, so Christ has brought life. Looking back again at the Old Testament, the sacrifices of unblemished lambs had to be made for every sin because the wages of sin is death. And we all deserve death. We all deserve to die because of our sins before a holy, righteous, and just God. Shedding of innocent blood was the only thing that could atone for man's sins. And in the New Testament, Christ is a sacrificial, unblemished Lamb of God. And He gave His life while we were still sinners. Romans 5, 8, verse 6. Or sorry, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And the news even gets better. Not only did he die for us while we were sinners, but he reconciled us while we were sinners. For, and and the Romans 5 verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. The wonderful, wonderful part of the Gospel is it promises that all who come to Him and all who come call upon His name will not be turned away. Let that day be today. Call upon His name for salvation if you are not saved. Sin may have brought death into the world, but Christ is the ultimate reconciler by his preeminence over all of creation. And this Christ, who is preeminent over creation, where the fullness of God dwells, is in us as believers and we in him. Colossians 3.3 For you have died, and your life is hidden. Your life is hidden. It is hidden with Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. Our life is hidden with Christ. So this morning we have looked at seven different ways this passage highlights the glory of Christ. We looked at Christ as the heir of creation. 
Christ, the creator, Christ, the eternal sustainer of all things, Christ, the head of the church, and Christ, the God-man, who came to reconcile all of creation to himself. Meditate on these truths. For as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Flee to Christ. There you will find these treasures. Meditate on Christ. He is the one who sustains the universe. He can sustain you. He is not surprised by anything. He is not surprised by your struggles, by your trials and temptations, and not even by your sins. Go to Him. He upholds the universe and He can uphold you. He reconciled all of creation to Himself and He can forgive you too. And in Him, you will find rest. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and I thank you, God. I thank you, Jesus, that you have died for our sins, that you came. You were once the creator of all. You still, you, you have always been the creator of all the universe, but you were once only found in the form of God, but you humbled yourself and came in the form of man. And yet you are the sustainer of all things. And through it all, you have reconciled us to yourself. And you sustain us as your, as your children. I pray, God, that you would draw your children to yourself. That those who are not saved, Father, that they would hear the gospel, that they would understand the gospel, and that they would believe the gospel for salvation. I thank you for your work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.